We're continuing in the book of 1 John this morning. Uh, we're moving back, actually, in the text a bit from last week uh, to a section that Pastor Steve had moved past as he had been focusing on the three tests that John gives to his audience. And we remember the story around the letter, the occasion for it, or the reason that it was written. John was writing to, these church, to this church or to this group of churches, and what had happened within them was that there had been a group of, of teachers there or, or you know, other people within the congregation who were teaching things that were not in line with what the Bible was teaching. We don't know the, exactly the content of all of that, but we know that most of this group had kind of moved on and had left the fellowship, but they were still around, their ideas were around, there was still the sense of influence, and so John is writing to reassure and to help strengthen this church. As we noticed the last few weeks, as Pastor Steve has been preaching through it, John seems to be giving his readers these tests. There are three of them to help them understand the implication and the results of of the gospel in their community. So these tests describe a right understanding of the believer in relation to God's word and God's teaching. So there were, as we look through them, there was the moral test that was described that's shown by keeping the commandments of God, by doing so with integrity. There's the social test that's shown through love and fellowship with other believers. There's the doctrinal test that's shown by right belief in God's word, by holding on to the truth rightly and understanding and believing the right doctrines. And we've seen, of course, in this, uh, as we've looked at them, that missing any of one of these means that they don't have a right relationship with God and His Word, that they've lost something of the heart of the gospel, that they've lost something of true community. And so in the midst of these three tests, we find this little, our section this morning, which is this little kind of, seems like a digression or an excursus, in which John is uh, kind of breaking up the flow to give us this passage that we'll look at this morning. So turn with me there if you haven't already. We're in 1 John uh, uh, chapter 2. It's on page 862 if you're using one of the blue pew Bibles. There's a sermon outline in the bulletin as well, pages 10 and 11, to help you follow along with me. Hear God's word um, from 1 John 2, starting in verse 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. For the reading of God's word, please pray with me. Father, now as we come to your word, you are our teacher, you are our guide, you are the one who has given this to us in our language that we can understand it, and so we ask that you would be the one who would teach us, 
teach us and, and train us through your word and change us as we encounter it this morning. Help me to have the words that are your words that, that honor you and that teach truly what you are trying to teach us and what this passage means to us this morning. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther was known, of course, for his many, many famous and colorful kinds of sayings. One of them was that he described human nature as a drunk peasant who's trying to get onto his horse. And so if you can picture the scene of a drunk peasant in medieval Europe trying to get onto his horse, if you help him get onto the horse on the one side, what's he going to do? He's going to fall off on the other side. And once he's up on the horse, he's not likely to stay there very long. We don't know exactly which way he's going to fall, but he's probably going to fall one way or the other. This was Martin Luther's way, I think, of describing human nature. And even for those of us who aren't routinely in the situation of the drunk peasant, we see his point, don't we? We struggle to keep balance in our lives, laziness or busyness. We're overcommitted or we're underutilized. We're hoarding or we're spending. And in a host of other ways, we tend towards the extremes rather than the path of moderation and wisdom. Of course, much of the reality TV that we see these days is all about the extreme extremes on either side of the people who are doing all kinds of things that seem to us way out there, but we know in our own hearts how prone we are to go one way or the other. It's true as part of human nature. It's also true, I think, as part of our human lives, as our Christian lives as well, that we tr struggle to maintain balance in our Christian saddles. We're prone to fall off one side or the other. We go from legalism to license and back to legalism again. We go from tipsy to teetotaler and back again. We go from pride, where I'm better than everyone else, to insecurity, I'm worse than everyone else. And we go back and forth again. We go one direction and then we go the other. We can fall off the horse in our Christian lives very easily. So what helps us to stay upright? How does God's word move us towards balance, towards wholeness, towards wisdom, towards health? in spiritual and physical and emotional kind of ways. There are many ways, but there are two specific ones, I think, that John is giving us here in this passage. Sometimes, and some of us, need assurance and reassurance. We need to be reminded of what is true and of what we have received in the gospel, of what is already ours. Some of us need warnings. We need to be reminded of the consequences of our actions and the need to pay close attention. And in different parts of our lives, each of us probably need both different things at the same time. We need encouragement to press on. We need warning not to go that way or that way. We need the carrot. We need the stick, as it were. And as we turn to our passage, we find these two sides of the coin taught here to help this young church and to help these young believers stay on track and to help us stay on track as well. So first, in these first three verses, we get this message of assurance and encouragement from John. Uh, verse 12, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, 
because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Again, in the context, for those who remained in this fellowship, this this breakup, this church division, this group leaving could have been very discouraging. It could have been very confusing. It could have been very saddening. And so as John is reiterating the purpose of writing his letter, we find here a message of reassurance and of encouragement. Let's look at the structure a bit as we kind of dive into this passage. John writes to three different addressees, children, fathers, and young men. He writes to them in that order, and he writes to them twice. Commentators are a bit divided about how to understand these labels. Is he writing to these groups based upon their age, or is he writing to them based upon their spiritual maturity? And how many groups are really in view? I'm convinced, without leading you through all of that, I'm convinced that the best interpretation is to see that John is addressing everyone in the church as dear children. This is very consistent in the way that he has written his letter. And then he's dressing the fathers and the young men based on their age, not upon their spiritual maturity, but based on their their physical age. And I'll kind of go through this as we see it in the next few minutes. One more thing to notice about the structure. In each of these six lines, they're, they're set apart in the NIV and some of our Bibles to indicate that they're written in sort of a different style. They're written in sort of a poetic kind of style with this structure to it. And we should notice that the main verb that occurs after the because, uh, it could also be translated that, but if the, the verb that occurs after that is in the perfect tense, which is indicating the present consequence of a past event. So John is saying, your sins have been forgiven, which is describing the past event with a present consequence. That's the pattern for each of these lines, and that is a big part of the reassurance of this message, of this passage, of these verses. God has acted on your behalf. The gospel has changed you in the present because of what has already happened in the past. You have it already. You can't lose it. Does that make sense? So the way the passage is structured is gives us that sort of reassurance that these things are true. Specifically, then, let's look a minute at the content of it. According to this understanding, John addresses all of the church, his dear children, with the assurance, verse 12, uh, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And then at the end of verse 13, I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. So these, I think, are addressed to the whole church. Their sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name, on account of his name, because of his work, because of his atoning uh, work accomplished at the cross. They have been forgiven. So they live now in the present experience of having been forgiven of all of their sins in the past as what Jesus had accomplished for them. As he addresses them again, as we noticed in the end of verse 13, John reminds them that they have known the Father. 
that this complete forgiveness that they have received has made God the Father their Father. They aren't just John's dear children, they're God's beloved children. And he'll teach us this again and them again at the beginning of chapter 3. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. These believers know God. John is assuring them that they have fellowship with God, that they're walking in the light, that they're passing these tests that are showing that their faith is genuine. So that's the message to the whole church. Then specifically, John addresses the fathers, and then we'll look at the young men. Verse, the first part of verse 13, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. We get an exact repeat of that, basically, in verse at the beginning of verse 14. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. John is using the normal, usual word for fathers. It's used only one other place in the New Testament in describing believers. That's in 1 Timothy 5.1. And it's referring to Timothy's conduct to those who are older in years than him. That's part of the reason why I think this is, is addressed to those who are older. John's assurance for these fathers sounds very similar to the message for the whole church that we saw at the end of verse 13, right? Who is the one who is from the beginning? We might naturally think that as a reference to God the Father, but the first verse of the letter, John begins it with that which was from the beginning, which is Jesus, referring to Jesus. So, so in this section, John is saying, you fathers have known Jesus. You older men and women in the church, sometimes these, you know, these words are used not gender specifically, um, you have known Jesus. It's possible, perhaps not likely, but possible that some of them actually knew Jesus in the flesh. If they're among the older generation, as John did, we don't have any clues that would either way about that, but it's interesting to think that might be true. But what's the assurance that these fathers needed? What's the, what's the message that the older generation of the church needed? I think it comes from having perhaps lived through difficult times. They've lived through church division and church factions and, and discussion. They've lived through persecutions in one form or another. They've lived through the struggles of being a believer as well as all of the difficulties of growing older in the ancient world. And this message, this assurance that you have known him from the beginning, I think is the assurance that their life has not been wasted, that their life has not been run in vain, that these older believers have truly known Jesus and that they followed him through all of the seasons of life. To the young men, John has a different message, a message of assurance that they will make it that they will get there as they, father, as they follow the fathers and the mothers in this congregation. So the uh, middle of verse 13, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then at the end of verse 14 again, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So for the young, in the midst of the busyness of life, John reminds them that they, have, they are victorious over the evil one. As he repeats that the second time, he spells out exactly the reasons why. You are strong, 
and the word of God remains or abides in you. And the strength of the young is not in their physical strength, but it's in their physical, their spiritual strength, that they've overcome the evil one through faith because the word of God is active in their lives. Because the word of God is abiding in them and they have strength. And so John points the young to the final outcome of success and victory over the evil one, the devil. And again, this is in the perfect tense to say, you have overcome already. It's been accomplished through your faith, not because of your own strength, but because the word of God is effective in you through your faith. You have overcome the evil one. Their conflict has become a conquest, is the way that one commentator put it. Their conflict and the busyness in the, in the young, young years of life has become a conquest. So then to summarize, John describes his purpose in writing this letter, addressing these different groups, reassuring his children of the profound and vital life-changing truths of the gospel. They have forgiveness of sins. They have a real relationship with the Father and with the Son, the one who is from the beginning. And they have victory in spiritual battle. Those are the kinds of assurances that John is giving his audience. Those are the kind of assurances that we need today, don't we? We need to know that our sins really are forgiven. We talk about that a lot, but it's really true. We can't exhaust the forgiveness or the grace of God. There will be a day when we will not struggle against sin or against God or against ourselves or against one another. But until then, we need to know that our faults and our weaknesses, that our selfishness and our unkindness, that our jealousies and our pettiness, that all of those things are covered over and that all of those things have been removed from us. We need to remember that every silly or stupid thing that we've done, every regret, every broken promise, every time we lost our temper, every sharp word, every lie, is eligible for confession and forgiveness. Everything. We need to know that our sins really are forgiven. We need that assurance each day, don't we? We need to know as well that God is our Father. It's easy again for us to say, and some of us have very fond um, memories and good relationships with our fathers, some of us don't. And particularly, I think, for those who have a strained relationship or no relationship with our earthly fathers, we're at a real disadvantage in understanding what it means when we say that God is a father, that he's a good father, that he's completely good that he's a strong protector, that he's not impatient, that he's not neglectful or abusive, that, he's not, that he doesn't belittle us, make us feel small, that he adopts us, that he welcomes us, that he cherishes us, that the one who made us the way we are, the one who knows us better than anyone in the whole world, is our father, and we are his children. And he's brought us into his family because he loves us. He cherishes us. We need to know that God is our Father. We need to know that we know Jesus. That 
He's real, that he's resurrected. We need to know that we're running the right race, that our lives are not, wait, are not being wasted. In all that we invest in God's kingdom, Jesus has promised that he will reward and that he will multiply it. And finally, we need to know that the end is good, that Satan doesn't win in the cosmos or in our lives either, that the promise of the gospel is that life won't fall apart beyond God's ability to bring redemption and healing and hope and new life. We need to know that we will overcome, that we won't fail, that we won't fall out of God's hands somehow, that we won't fall beyond his ability to bring us back. If indeed we are in Christ, we are victorious. Satan cannot truly or finally overcome us. We, as it says here, are assured of the fact that we have overcome. That's the message of assurance. It's the message of reassurance. It's what we need sometimes. It's the carrot that we need. It's what we need to keep going in this life. But we also, and John knew that his children also, needed warnings from time to time. And the message of warning moves us from a sort of past indicative, that is what's true about us in the past, uh, and with present consequences and ongoing consequences in our lives, we, that this message now moves us to a present imperative, that which is now required of us, that which we need to do in order to keep on the horse, right? We need warnings also. Verse 15 begins this section. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. What does it mean? What does this passage mean? What does it mean to love the world or anything or the things of the world? We have to sort out a couple of these words. We have to sort out what love means and we have to sort out what what world means, because in different contexts, they mean different things. John writes, of course, in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. So how is John using love, and how is John describing the world, or what does he mean to it, about it? Love, of course, means a lot of things in our, in our language, in our world. Two men were eating dinner one night. One man said, I love this fish. The other said, If you had really loved this fish, you wouldn't be eating it. (laughs) We mean a lot of different things when we use the word love. The kind of love that John is describing is that which draws the heart, that which motivates us, that which animates us. And John puts that kind of love for God in opposition, or love for the world, in opposition to love for the Father. In other words, it's a question of what's most valuable to us, what's most important, what's most cherished. John is saying in different words the same things that Jesus said. No one can serve two masters. 
You can't serve both God and mammon, the King James sort of word meaning all of the stuff of life. James reminds us, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? So this kind of love that John is describing is that expression of what we most want. It's what moves us. And John commands that we should not love the world. And in that sense, as we'll describe in a little bit, he's describing the value system and the agenda of the world. But he also writes, he says, you know, don't love the world or anything in the world. Other translations would say, or the things of the world. So it's not just the ways of the world and the worldly system, but it's also the actual physical stuff of the world. Now, this doesn't mean that we're to hate God's creation. We read in other places, of course, that we're to enjoy it, we're to steward it, take good care of the world that God has given us. What does it mean for us today that, we would, that John would tell us, do not love the things of the world? We have to consider our relationship to the things of the world. Because the world is constantly telling us that things are more than just things. The world tells us things are more than just things. The kind of things you have says a lot about you. Things describe and define you. Things express who you are. Things show your individuality or your sophistication. The things of this world make great promises to you or at least the people who are producing the things of this world are making promises to you on behalf of their things they're producing. Things will make you happy and fulfill you. Things will simplify your life and make you more productive. Things will demonstrate to others what a great or interesting or intelligent or fashionable person you really are. The world assures us that things are more than things. And we're drawn in. Because we love things, and we love the promise of how great things really are, and we love what we think they will do for us. In so many shapes and sizes and variety, our relationship with things drives us and drives our choices. And John's warning is don't love these things. Don't give yourself to them. We just uh, finished reading the second book in the Little House on the Prairie um, series. If you've read those, um, I read them not every night, but some nights to the girls. And uh, I was, as you read the books, you're profoundly amazed by how little they had in terms of material possessions. They packed everything in a wagon. The whole family could get up and move and drive across the prairie. And of course, you can love a little as easy as you can love a lot, but the stories, you know, it just strikes you as you read it of how little they had, how much they lived on the land. And I remember um, my great-grandmother, who I, I knew when I was growing up, she moved to Kansas with her family in a covered wagon my mom's grandmother. That's not that long ago in the last decades of the, of the 19th century. 
And so it's remarkable to think about the way that hu- the human, um, just in, in the course of a century or more, how much the human relationship with material possessions has proliferated and has defined us and has demanded space in our lives. You have stuff, you have to take care of stuff. And, and this sermon is preached to me. Don't talk to Aaron about this afterwards. I'm the pack rat in the family. <laughs> this is the message that I, I come by it honestly. It's, you know, this is a message for me. What, what is stuff for? Why do, we, why do we need it? How do I view it? What's my relationship like with the things of this world? How is it hurting me? How is it hurting you? What also, we need, you know, as we think about love and we think about our relationship with the world and the things of the world, we have to understand what John means by the word world here in this context. C.H. Dodd, famous New Testament commentator, described the world as the life of human society as organized under the power of the devil. The world means the value system, the organizing principles, the agenda of the world that stands in opposition to God. And helpfully then, in this passage, John particularly describes this value system to show what he means by the use of the word world here. Verse 16, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. These are the characteristics that we see in the world. The world is driven by sinful cravings. That's the, literally the desires of the flesh. It's what we want. Our, it's what our bodies want. It's our creature comforts. It's, it's all of the things that our flesh, that is tainted by sin, uh, desires that come from within us. The world is also driven by the lust of the eyes. That is the things that we look at that we want. Right? Those are the things actually that are outside of us that we covet. That's what coveting really means. It's simply wanting what someone else has. And God is so serious about coveting that he puts it as one of the Ten Commandments. The Apostle Paul writes, I didn't know what it was to covet until God told me not to covet. And then I recognized how much coveting I actually do, how much I want that which other people have. The world is driven, the third thing, by boasting in what we have and what we do. This is literally the pride or arrogance of possessions. Possessions make us feel important. Again, in our society, possessions define us. Possessions say things about who we are. And we want others to see that. We want to be able to be proud or arrogant of the things that we have. And so defined in this way, we can see clearly, right, why John is telling his children, don't love the world. And we need this kind of warning because in many ways, we, we struggle. We struggle to know how to live in the world and not be of the world. We struggle to not be that much different from our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers who aren't believers. In some ways, we're very similar. We live in the same neighborhoods. We drive in the same cars. We have the same hobbies. But in other ways, we're called to be profoundly different. 
And so as we begin to think specifically about all that this means for us today, we have to ask ourselves here, what's the warning here in this passage? What kind of danger do we face that's the same as John's original readers faced? He says it here, believers in Christ Jesus cannot live like the world in some deep and fundamental kinds of ways because, as John says here in verse 15, there's an inherent incompatibility between God's ways and the world's ways. And the world wants to take God's place in the hearts of everyone. The world, driven by the enemy, the evil one, wants us to want things instead of God. The enemy wants us to be distracted by things instead of giving our hearts more and more to God. And the world makes promises that it can't possibly keep. And God keeps promises. And God offers something much better. Which is connected then to the second part of the application that we see in verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. We can't and shouldn't love the world and give ourselves to it, not just because it's idolatry, not just because it's seeking to take the place of God in our lives, but because it's also a losing investment. The transience of the world's stuff and its desires, these things are passing away. They're waiting for any kind of refinement or redemption that would happen to them in a renewed and sinless world. But what the world is offering us is fleeting, and it's temporary, and it's insubstantial. Do I really believe this? Do you really believe this? We're programmed not to believe this. We're programmed to believe that stuff will make us happy, and that life consists in the accumulation of things. We don't say it that way, but that's what we're programmed to believe. John says the one who does the will of God will live forever. And the stuff of this world is passing away. As we conclude, then, we just ask, how do you need assurance today from this passage? How do you find it here? And how do you also need warning today or challenge? Be assured of these things. Be assured of the forgiveness of your sins complete and free. Be assured that you are not an orphan in this world, but that you have a heavenly Father. Be assured this morning that you have overcome the world. So respond by rethinking your relationship with the world. Be challenged not to be led by the world's way of thinking and living and investing and valuing. Be challenged to fight against the world's obsession with stuff and to live instead for what's eternal. We need to ask God, don't we, for the grace to find, to find the grace of assurance and to find the grace of warning. Both are here for us. Both are offered to us in the gospel because he is a God of grace and mercy that he extends to his children. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, this morning we are thankful. We pause and thank you that you have made us your children. 
that objects of wrath have become children of God, beloved in your sight. And we don't want to skip over that. We want, it to, we want that to change us. Assure us of those words this morning. Assure us of your love for us. And also warn us that you call us to love you more than anything else. Help us to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.